Welcome to another exciting edition of Open Swim featuring your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Alex Knight, and Jennifer Cho So today we have a really exciting podcast in store for you. And we're going to be delving into technology and communications and how things are changing across the generations, as well as what the data is suggesting about communication and behavior in the future. And joining us today is Senior Analyst at Forrester Research on the Data and Insights team, Anjali Lai. Welcome, Anjali. Hello. Thank you so much for being here with us on the podcast today. So I'm actually going to turn it over to Eric because I know that actually Anjali and Eric have spent some time working together over the years. We as a firm have had the opportunity to do some exciting research-based projects with Forrester. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the research that helps to uncover insights that will inform your strategy and then get into the meat of our topic, which is technology communications and how this is changing through the generations. Anjali and I had the chance to work together for a few years. It was really excellent to work with her to understand the decision-making process that a lot of consumers go through and understanding their media habits, whether that be consumption or engagement habits, and then translate those into meaningful definitions that guide strategy and development of marketing. So today we're really excited to focus a little less on the data and more on the the information and how that can help us understand the differences in generations and that generation gap and recognizing that each generation is unique and we need to be thoughtful and responsive to their needs so that we can actually communicate them in the right way. So Anjali, I was wondering if you could first start off and, and talk a bit about yourself, your background, and some of the research that you've conducted over the years and how it's kind of brought you to this point. Eric, it's great to reconnect with you as well. And thank you so much for um, having me on today's podcast. I'm excited for the conversation. As you mentioned, I'm a senior analyst on Forrester's Data Insights team, uh, which means that I work very closely um, with our consumer technographics data product, which is essentially um, a series of global um, survey studies that measure consumer trends in terms of behaviors um, and attitudes. Over the past few years, I've also helped to spearhead our data innovation efforts, which um, have included introducing a qualitative research methodology um, to our data product portfolio, um, which we typically run through a market research online community that we've built in-house. And it also involves uh, introducing a social listening methodology, so we're now able to scrape the web for all publicly posted consumer-generated conversation to understand um, not only what topics are trending uh, naturally and kind of organically in consumer dialogue, but also what sort of sentiment that is driving and what specific emotions that's driving and how those emotions are then priming consumers for new behaviors. And we've also introduced a behavioral methodology to passively track what individuals are doing on their portable devices. So in my role, I essentially use this multimodal research approach to understand changes in consumer behavior and also consumer decision-making. So you'll see my research published online. Um, you know, I'll draw from a combination of these data sources when writing our research reports, but then I'll also partner with clients on a more sort of custom basis to tailor any and all of this data to address uh, particular objectives. So in terms of my research coverage, one of the sort of main topics that has kind of stormed onto the scene in the past few years is 
around consumer emotion, so how emotion drives brand selection, uh, the intention to um, adopt new products or experiences. And then as kind of an extension of that, a lot of the research has been around um, the psychology of uh, new product adoption. It's also led to a sort of really interesting study that will probably be continuing over the next few years around how company values and perceived brand values play into uh, consumer decision-making and not only the uh, decision around choosing a brand, but also how it drives um, loyalty choices. My research is tapping into these different data sources to um, understand how we can measure emotion in new ways, how we can sort of detect um, how emotion is driving consumer activity, and then ideally also use that to predict how expectations are changing um, over time or among certain consumer groups. Attitudes are changing and um, how consumers are becoming more willing to adopt new experiences and how their appetite for innovation is growing. Around the dawn of social media, everyone started to really focus on the sentiment in conversations when they were doing listening. And I, and I feel like that idea of motion went from the listening and sentiment to now really understanding the emotion like you're talking about, where it's the, the undercurrent of what's driving people to act in certain ways, change their motivations and their overt behavior in the end. I think expectations, you know, is a really interesting topic as well when we get into these types of conversations. You know, it was interesting. I just read an article in the New York Times about the grumpy generation. Anjali, I don't know if you read that one, um, but what they're talking about is this group right around the 50-year-old mark and how expectations are not aligning with where they thought that they would be in their life at this point because they're in their peak earning years and yet they're not doing what they thought they would be doing. And so, you know, as, you know, and they were talking about, you know, many of the things you're talking about as far as when you kind of tap into attitudes and you start going through the process of seeing, you know, how they're expressing themselves online and, and some of the things that are emotionally are being unveiled. There's just so much you can learn from just kind of sitting back and watching and listening. That's absolutely true. And I think the, the science around emotion has become even more robust in recent years. And that has been you know, informing sort of everyone's understanding of emotion. And now we're able to use data to get down to extremely granular emotions. And we can now do things like correlate specific emotions with particular behaviors or likelihoods, repurchase or to open your wallet and pay for a premium experience or something like that. So we're able to kind of identify like which emotional levers to pull to move consumers along, you know, the life cycle phases and sort of push them along the speed of decisions that they have to make when interacting with a brand. I love that point that you made about, you know, expectations because it's also something that changes. So when you talk about the grumpy generation, we may get into this when we talk about generations specifically, but, you know, they are thinking about those emotions or those expectations, maybe in sort of a broader view, but I would venture to guess that, you know, as they continue using technology and sort of gradually adopt newer um, or relatively newer tools and technologies that are available today, their expectations for sort of smaller scale interactions are evolving and, and that benchmark basically is, is moving with time. So expectations are certainly flexible as well. <laughs> That's a good thing. Maybe there's hope yet for the grumpy generation. <laughs> we can recalibrate those expectations. <laughs> Yeah.
So before we delve into any specifics, I think what we should do is define the generations because there are a lot of different ways that you see companies splicing and dicing. You know, where does Gen X start and end, millennials, et cetera. So Anjali, can you tell us how Forrester breaks down the generations so that we know what we're dealing with for the purpose of this conversation? Yes, absolutely. Generational groups are uh, technically different from age groups, right? And I think that that's something that those two get conflated, you know, fairly often. But, you know, age groups are defined by age. So when you're talking about like customer age groups, that means that, you know, people are moving basically from one group to another as they get older. Whereas generational groups are defined by the year that individuals are born. In that case, the sort of cohort of these um, individuals is shaped by, you know, common experiences. Um, Their outlook is really impacted by external events and the environment and um, sort of, you know, their society. Um, And and that's really how we kind of think about defining a generation. Um, So at Forrester, we um, tend to define millennials or, you know, Generation Y as individuals born between 1980 and 2000. So they're the people that are currently about 18 to 37 years old. We also typically split that um, because it's such a broad you know, range and includes a, a wide range of um, individuals that not only have different ages, but also different behaviors and attitudes. So we typically split it so that the current 18 to 27 year olds are considered young millennials or also commonly called Generation Z. And those age 20 to you know, 37 or so Um, are the older millennials or Generation Y. And then, you know, the way that we look at it at Forrester, generations then move forward from there. So Generation X are people that are today around age 30, you know, 37, 38, up to age 50. Younger boomers are currently age 51 to about 60. Older boomers are age 61 to 71. And then what we call the golden generation is basically age, you know, 72 and up. Just because we get around Here at Shark and Minnow, we use Forrester as our guide for defining these generations, but it's interesting to look at some of the other data providers out there. They seem to use different years to define these generations. And Anjali, I was curious, why do you think that is that there isn't a consensus around this topic of what defines the generation as far as years? Yeah, it's a good question. When we talk about understanding um, generational groups, we really can get at those distinct characteristics by, as I mentioned, examining external factors that inevitably impact their development, like significant political events, um, economic prospects, traditions, culture. Cultural changes are extremely fluid, um, and so it can be hard to you know, indicate where the breaking point is or that division is between one generation or another, especially when we're living it. So when we're talking about people that are um, you know, existing around us or sort of growing up in today's day and age, it's, it's hard to sort of draw a line in the sand and talk about where experiences really differ. 
And also, I think because generational groups are characterized by their culture, um, different countries can have extremely different uh, meanings or interpretations of what a generation is and what it stands for and, and what it means. Do your definitions typically apply to the U.S.? What are the parameters that you use? Because like you say, depending on where you're growing up in the world, your cult- cultural reference point is going to be different. What we have decided to do is at Forrester, we really just talk about generations in the context of the U.S., And then when we um, address our global data, we look at age groups. So we don't want to necessarily, you know, bring that uh, cultural baggage that's associated with talking about particular generations to the research globally just because it varies so much by country, whereas because a lot of our expertise is focused on the U.S., you know, we can delve into those details in this particular market. How do you feel technology has affected expectations across these generations, you know, from the golden generation all the way to Gen Y, millennials, in regard to fulfillment, you know, outlook and satisfaction of life? One of the core environmental forces that has really um, defined and shaped the um, attitudes and motivations and, as you say, expectations of the millennial segment is the fact that um, you know, they are essentially digital natives, right, especially Generation Z, who can't really remember a time before, you know, their, you know, household's first computer or, you know, a time before the Internet or um, uh, digital connection, really. Their um, learning curve that older generations typically associate with adopting new technologies and new digital experiences is, you know, certainly not as evident um, and is not as much of a barrier for experimenting with new brands and products and, you know, digital interactions. These, you know, younger consumers are more often willing to try out new brands and products. They are less risk averse, I guess, uh, when it comes to seeing new digital uh, tools and digital experiences sort of available to them. And, you know, they are essentially more willing to experiment um, with these types of things than, than older generations. That's so interesting in our world because for so long in the marketing space, everyone was fixated on brand loyalty and brand affinity. And that was really how you could ensure longevity for your product or your brand. And now that really isn't a safeguard anymore. Based on what you're saying, um, consumers are just so much more willing to try things out, you know, switch brands, you know, there's just the, the loyalty, particularly with, you know, that millennial population is just not there. And, you know, for good or bad, you know, from from the marketing side of things, what that means is that newer products have more of a chance of entering the market and being successful. The ways in which these younger consumers are motivated to stay relatively loyal to, to companies is, is changing as well. So we've recently done some research around, for example, what millennials expect from loyalty programs versus older consumers. Consumers. And we found that for um, the millennial generation, there is a huge emphasis on um, quality of experience rather than, you know, getting kind of that sense of validation or achievement by like collecting, you know, points and, um, you know, miles and sort of cash rewards and uh, special deals and things like that, which, of course, don't get me wrong, is still important. They you know, continue to put a a greater emphasis on immersive experiences, really kind of emotionally enriching experiences, and even premium experiences. So, you know, the sense of like exclusive events or exclusive, you know, online content or, you know, loyalty 
program allows them to unlock a particular kind of digital experience. That's something that really motivates them and continues to draw them into brand's sort of digital world. Um, and, and that's something that is distinct, right? So that's something we, we don't see as strong for uh, the their older counterparts. I'm curious, though, anecdotally, one of the things that you know, that we've observed is that there are some interesting parallels between what's happening with millennials and what's happening with boomers in terms of loyalty programs and just their usage of technology and adoption and willingness to engage and and share and make themselves open and in some cases vulnerable. I'm wondering if in your research you've seen any parallels between generations that have showcased how behaviors are changing around technology and loyalty programs, I think, factor into that as well. This is something that we see uh, fairly fairly frequently. To be totally honest, I have a little bit of a a love-hate relationship when it comes to generations because, you know, while there is certainly truth to generational categorizations and the way in which we talk about generations today um, offers up a decent framework for organizing pockets of the population or a customer base, we also tend to rely on the concept of generations a lot. And we are, I think, dangerously close to running away with the label without really pausing to identify nuances within generations, you know, to understand how generations sort of change over time. And as I sort of mentioned earlier, generations are ultimately about the psychological differences and uh, conditioning according to changes in the environment. So if baby boomers are sort of about the post-World you know, World War II life, millennials are about growing up without a seriously major military catastrophe or like a World War level crisis. As I mentioned, Gen Z is about being a digital native. So it's not necessarily behaviors that are defining a generation. Rather, behaviors are a function of different uh, conditioning and different sort of emotions and, and as we've talked about already quite a bit, um, expectations. So what that means is that, you know, generations are changing according to their current environment and that's why we typically see some surprising nuances in the data and there's maybe a little bit of like myth busting that needs to happen to help us realize that, you know, technology adoption is not just something that millennials are doing. Even becoming relying, uh, relying on technology is not something that um, is strictly a sort of millennial trend or millennial thing. As you're pointing out, older generations like the boomers and other uh, generations really across the board are also buying into digital tools and technologies and becoming conditioned almost in like a sort of Pavlovian way to rely on these personal devices and look for subsequently, you know, emotionally enriching experiences and, and, and um, look for novel ways to interact with a brand. The difference is really that millennials have an appetite for this and are really sort of demanding this uh, change, whereas the older generations are more gradually kind of evolving in this way. We focus so much on the generation, but to me, a lot of the behavior comes from the generation right before them. So, for example, I, I, look, I look to my dad, for example, where just a few years ago, he did not understand the concept of texting, why anybody would text, you know, and now that's all he does. Um, and I think a big, and he's a boomer, and so then he was obviously raised by the greatest generation. And to what you were saying earlier about you not being, you know, the current generations not being not existing in a world that's had a major military confrontation. Remembering back to my grandparents, it was all about privacy. It was about you don't tell other people your family secrets or what's going on in the neighborhood. And 
and I've seen that application and that ideal that my parents were raised with, you know, in their bafflement of social media. Like, why would you share that on, on Facebook? Why do people do this? You know, it's to them, I see the confusion and as easy as it is for me to explain like what a good tool it can be, I have to step out of my own, you know, like how do they not understand like the appreciate or the, you know, the benefits of social media, but you have to look at, at the ideals that they were raised in. You know, they were, when they were children, they were doing drills where they went under desks, you know, and, and the world that we live in today, now granted in a new way where, you know, I have several friends who are teachers and there are lockdown procedures because of the world of gun so I guess my question is, you know, my statement and my question is, do you look to the, you know, not only the generation and their behaviors, but the generation of which they were raised? I think it's interesting because what we're speaking about, the core concept there is aspiration. So the, each generation might have aspirational generation that they look up to. And sometimes it's actually not your parents' generation. It's the generation after, like your grandparents. But I can speak for myself. I had a lot of friends that were older than me when I was in high school. And so I looked up to the Gen X. So the question is then, do you start to translate some of those behaviors from that generation to your own? And there's so much connection there. And especially now technology. I think that's one of the things too, because in prior generations, it's about privacy, not sharing things. Now everything's online. So you're exposed to different types of music, different movies. What you're getting into is that it's more interest-based. And, you know, I think Anjali touched on that as well, because, you know, what defines you as a person isn't necessarily what has you hang with your generation. So, you know, a lot of the work we do here at Shark and Minnow um, around research, you know, takes the form of maybe a persona where we go into attitudes and technographics and behavioral motivators and things like that. And what you start to see is obviously, you know, to Anjali's point, this blending of, okay, your your target audience isn't going to split equally down the lines, you know, of each of these generational groups that she's identified. So I think, you know, again, we're getting into a couple of different things here, you know, just because you're ident- you know, identified as part of a generation and, you know, for the purposes of this conversation that dictates that you should have certain attitudes around technology, it doesn't necessarily mean that you as an individual are going to kind of fit into that perfect box. There certainly something kind of enchanting to many generations to either you know look uh, look forward and and kind of observe what like the you know youngest sort of emerging um, consumers are doing and 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 how that behavior is perceived to be different from previous norms, um, but also looking back and you know understanding how things have have changed over time. And there was a, a really interesting article in The Atlantic recently that um, shows that technology actually is one of the, and specifically the mobile phone, is one of the biggest catalysts that's driving a larger um, perceived change between the current millennial generation and any previous generation that has passed. So essentially, you know, the mobile phone has so evidently disrupted the the way that people view the world and, you know, communicate with one another, but also learn about and, and interact with brands, other sort of organizations and institutions, that the emotional effects and social effects of that are, you know, really long-lasting repercussions. And so if you kind of map it out in the data, you'll see that, Yes, there are certain, you know, attitudinal changes with every kind of generation that's passed, and it's a relatively similar pattern when you when you look historically. But 
then you know things kind of start to spike when we look at today's millennials and, and specifically today's younger millennials at Generation Z. Um, and it's because of the um, advent of the, the mobile phone, really. What kind of surprising things are being unveiled in the data? And where do you think we're going in terms of technology usage? We understand that, again, we're migrating away from being locked to a physical computer and, you know, the environmental technology factors that are emerging with things like Alexa. But, you know, what are some of the attitudes towards technology that are you're, you're uncovering in the data that might help us to predict where we're going? Are there certain platforms that... Of certain age groups gravitate towards, you know, and we're talking about like Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter. I'm kind of curious what the data shows in terms of different platforms and how people are engaging online. In terms of how attitudes towards technology are changing, we've been trying to answer this question, you know, for uh, for many years, and, and we've been examining, you know, over two decades worth of behavioral and attitudinal uh, quantitative data to understand, you know, how attitudes towards technology are evolving um, and really kind of prove that out in the data as opposed to um, purely relying on, you know, anecdotes or, or intuition or sort of observation. What we've been able to um, discern in the data and, and kind of prove out is that um, people are. Uh, evolving in sort of five key ways. So one is a way that we already talked about, which is that they're um, becoming more uh, willing to experiment with new technologies and they're more sort of anxious to uh, try out um, novel uh, digital experiences. But also they're becoming conditioned to rely on their portable devices to get tasks done. So you know, their, their time spend on technology is growing, uh, or you know, on screens really, is growing exponentially. Uh, and that is driving this new sort of need to converge the digital and physical. So that's like the third major change that we see among younger consumers is that the gap between the digital and physical worlds is, is narrowing and really the, the two are perceived as being, you know, seamless experiences and both are critical to navigating the, you know, young consumers' uh, world. Um, fourth, people are also using technology and uh, leveraging um, information and connections to get smarter at navigating online information and uh, learning about brands. So consumers that are younger are more likely to follow company news very closely, possibly read like privacy policies and discern valuable information online. So they're developing the uh, facility to um, seek out information that exists when they're making you know, a brand decision or a product choice. Um, and then finally, technology has really empowered this younger generation to feel in control of their experiences, and it has created this demand that people interact with the most sort of emotionally enriching brands and seek validation that they are working with the, the best brands and, and with the best products. 
So these are the five changes that we're seeing driving the sense of empowerment, really, and it's all reaction to um, uh, technology, but it's also being um, accelerated because of new technologies that exist and, and sort of the, the rapid pace with which younger consumers are adopting and trying them out. So then to the second question around, you know, what does this mean for, like, platforms that younger consumers are engaging on and how they're, you know, connecting with one another, what we found in the data is that communication among these uh, millennials and younger consumers is becoming highly contextual, highly personalized, right? There's this need to receive the right message at the right moment in the right place, which is, you know, kind of playing to that need for, um, you know, almost like self-efficacy or, um, you know, validating that they're uh, working with these emotionally enriching and, and highly relevant brands and experiences. In terms of social conversation, at the same time, I feel that there is this sort of retreat into smaller social groups. So whether that's on like social media, you know, we find that in the data, younger people are opting for Snapchat uh, rather than, you know, blasting their personal stories across broader social networks or whether it's through messaging. So like WhatsApp, for example, is, you know, far preferred over voice calls. Facebook Messenger is one of the top five apps on these young uh, consumers' phones in the U.S. So there's this retreat into smaller kind of groups um, and using technology to facilitate really sort of authentic, intimate connection rather than a broad advocacy. And then there's this overall emphasis on emotional resonance uh, when communication is coming either for people or for brands. So there's this need that younger consumers have to recognize that they're dealing with people and, and brands that are authentic, that are empathetic, and that convey these qualities through both digital and physical channels. I think that's really interesting. I actually just read a study on Media Post where what they were talking about was the fact that younger millennials were actually a lot more skeptical of brands than previous generations and particularly less influenced by brands that were putting heavily branded messages into social media. And I'm wondering if that's something you're seeing in your data as well and what this could mean for brands that do want to engage in an authentic way with their audience um, particularly if their audience happens to be, you know, the younger generations. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. We see it consistent in, in the data. And again, I think it's because, you know, when you sort of consider that millennials are, you know, emerging as consumers in what many are calling this post, post-truth age, they've basically witnessed a, a series of institutions kind of faltering or, or crumbling when it comes to their authority and, and what we've considered to be truthful in the past. So, you know, whether that was like the financial institutions, you know, several years ago, or whether it's sort of all of the, you know, most current news around harassment issues and, and things like that, that's kind of sweeping through a variety of, of industries. Um, there's almost this, we're living in this age of revelation where things that we believe to be a certain way are, we're finding out are not necessarily the case. And, uh, you know, what we consider to be authentic or sort of what we invested our trust in historically, we find is not, you know, 
sort of living up to, again, that point of expectation that we have considered in the past. And so I think that, yes, absolutely, this is driving many young consumers to be skeptical of brands, to be skeptical of sort of institutions at large. Um, and, and therefore, the things that they're looking for and the factors of an experience that drive trust among these consumers is going to be um, different than what drives trust among older consumers. And just sort of a side note, we're actually doing quite a bit of research into this very question of trust now. So stay tuned for some research on that early next year. But we're, we're trying to understand, you know, what is it about messaging and an experience that consumers perceive that particular content to be authentic and to be empathetic. So one thing, for example, is uh, this point about company values. We find that millennials are far more clued into company values than older consumers and actively consider uh, values when making purchase decisions. And to millennials, company values are not just sort of a, a you know vision mission statement. It's really what they see a brand doing, right? So um, who the company is partnering with, you know, what sort of culture the, the company has um, internally, how the, the brand is um, building value in the, you know, local community or, you know, in, in the society at large. These are, are factors, these sort of intangible factors are highly um, top of mind for, for younger consumers and are heavily driving their, their decision making. Yeah. And I mean, in a previous episode, we actually talked about blockchain. Through that type of idea, it's becoming much more possible for consumers of all generations to do exactly what you're talking about, which is see what the footprint of any given brand is or company and make informed decisions about whether or not their values reflect you know, the values of that consumer. So, you know, it's becoming through technology a lot easier to get that type of information and to stay informed and holding brands obviously a lot more accountable for their actions. So I want to go back to a previous statement that Anjali made, which was millennial generation is retreating from these platforms that are more public. So my question is, is Facebook going to die, Anjali? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one that I know is uh, the subject of many debates. We just recently put out a report on this very topic. In fact, I think it's um, still in sort of the publishing queue and and will go live on our website in in the next couple of days. Um, And what we see is that, yes, uh, when we look at the data uh, over time, we find that Facebook is falling behind among among the youngest consumers, and it's you know certainly a trend among millennials, but even you know younger individuals, so even like teenagers between you know age 13 to 17, we find that um, younger consumers have recently both joined and increasingly used sites like uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Snapchat, right? And that's recent, meaning over the past three years. And the youngest consumers, like even people age like 12 and 13, um, also, interestingly enough, began using Twitter and Pinterest more frequently. Um, They're deriving some kind of specific value from these sites. But Facebook is the only platform whose usage and frequency rates um, among young consumers have barely changed. And so, as a result, when we look at just the data among um, you know young young consumer groups, so like teens and millennials, we find that YouTube has you know certainly blown past Facebook to become their most popular social network. Something like 96% of young consumers are accessing YouTube, and that number has grown over the past few years. 
um, Instagram and Snapchat are exhibiting you know, steady growth um, among these groups and are sort of clipping at Facebook's heels um, in terms of penetration, but also usage frequency. But these young consumers really show no signs of, of growing their relationship with Facebook, so those numbers have remained stagnant. The sort of interesting nuance behind all that and, and um, you know, something to, to keep in mind is that um, what this is proving out, in my view, is that teens and millennials are hooked on the social networks that deliver distinct value. So even though a large number of millennials are continuing to sort of default to Facebook currently because it enables broad connection, millennials are really kind of putting a, a premium on other sites like YouTube because of the specific value they, they derive. So YouTube is kind of their go-to for pure entertainment. Pinterest um, helps millennials, especially you know millennial females, um, discover new brands and products. It's one of the top sites for um, finding um, new new brands and products um, across the swath of social networks they typically use. Snapchat is the vehicle for intimate communication between friends, and this ties back to the conversation we're having about you know authenticity and brand values. I think there's less of a of a lust for kind of going after um, these sort of larger stories and, and um, facilitating broad connection and sort of connecting with um, institutions and, and people across the world. And, you know, whereas that may have been kind of the enchantment of Facebook and other large social networks several years ago, right now there's a greater appetite to have a really authentic individual conversation with someone. So, you know, Snapchat um, and, and other kind of technology platforms that facilitate that are striking a chord um, with millennials and, and therefore are you know, gaining, gaining momentum. Um, so, so yeah, so that's definitely the, the trend that we see. And again, you know, you can look at the behavior, but it's also understanding the, the value that these younger generations are getting from the social networks that positions social networks like Snapchat um, to, you know, certainly win loyalty um, for, for a longer time and, and, and overtake Facebook and other established networks that are, you know, currently not living up to millennials' expectations and, and are facing a, a brand image problem. So it seems that the trend for social media usage is going more to interactive video and pictures and sort of less text-based content. Going back to the Facebook question, if Facebook's going to die, it, it seems like it's a good, it was a good investment for them to buy Instagram. Um, because that's, that's, what, a lot of, that's a lot, a, what a lot of the younger generation is using is Instagram and Snapchat for immediate pictures and, and uh, video access. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even on Facebook's, you know, on the Facebook homepage, you'll, you know, see so many more kind of videos populating like the news feed. And I think there's certainly um, this bent towards being more visual uh, rather than text-based. Um, and, and it makes sense, right? Like video, videos are naturally sticky, you know, even if it's something that you're not interested in, you're more likely to sit and kind of watch a video than you are to you know, generate the cognitive energy that it needs to like read a paragraph of text. And we can absolutely see that, especially when observing the millennials. So Anjali, you've talked a lot about value with each of these channels. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about what that means for brands, uh, specifically for advertisers that want to be on these platforms and be delivering um, value to their consumers, you know, in a branded way. Um, I, you know, this week, Snapchat announced that they were actually changing their feed so that if you want to, which, you know, is a question mark about who really wants to, although there are brands that people have affinity for, 
if you want to engage with branded content, it actually is going to be displayed in a separate feed. Um, so there's a lot of conversation in our world around what does this mean for advertisers? Is this going to be detrimental to the revenue of a platform like that because your message is less likely to be seen organically? It's going to have to be selected, or at least the the, the user is going to have to select um, or opt into seeing that messaging on some level. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if changes like that predict usage, you know, positive or negative of some of these channels, and also, you know, what that means for brands that want to, you know, make social media a part of their media buy. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I can speak to kind of reactions from the consumer side and, and what this might mean, you know, in terms of how millennials are perceiving Snapchat and, um, you know, the brand in the context of other networks. I can see sort of, you know, why they've done this. And, and one of the things that we've talked about or sort of touched on is this need for companies to be transparent with with millennials and so you know millennials are highly and even younger consumers are highly sensitive to um, messaging that may appear to be um, as we said you know heavily branded or uh, really kind of put forth as you know what we would traditionally think of as advertising and because these individuals are all too familiar with you know brand mishaps and sort of data breaches and things like that they they uh, are. They expect companies to be as honest as possible, and if that means sort of being forthcoming around, you know, what is marketing material versus what is really, you know, not, and and what is generating personal, authentic, um, intimate conversation, that's something that will work in a brand's favor and um, you know generate trust among this particular group. So that's you know something kind of interesting to watch, but I think that, you know, even though it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, being that forthcoming and and having that kind of radical transparency really um, is viewed as a positive for for young consumers. And Anjali, do you think that's kind of the difference between content marketing and advertising, that content marketing tends to fall more on the authentic side because the hope is that people are creating authentic content that speaks to the reader or the consumer and then sometimes advertising can be viewed as more of a uh, persuasive, an intentional approach for selling. From your response, it sounds like if brands would engage more in content marketing, they might be more likely to move into that role where they're going to engage with their customers. I think yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, millennials are, you know, certainly skeptical of, of content that appears to be advertising. And I think that the also, you know, the, the patience that young consumers have for, you know, intrusive ads or for, you know, having to watch an ad before clicking through to their YouTube video or something like that is waning, right? So anything that appears to be sort of a, a effort of kind of push marketing from an organization or institution is, is kind of an automatic turnoff for these young consumers. And even though they may bear it for now um, in order to access their content, you know, as they develop and as they, you know, become sort of more experienced consumers and, you know, of course, grow um, financially and, and become financially independent and um, really take ownership of their experiences, they are going to be more keen on um, selecting experiences that allow them to avoid anything uh, that, you know, appears to be an intrusive ad. Um, so I think, you know, absolutely, that's that's going to be a trend we see continue. Yeah, I'm losing my edge. 
a lot about B2C. I'm really curious, Anjali, from the perspective of B2B, what are some of the trends you're seeing there? Uh, specifically for a lot of our clients, they're focused on LinkedIn, no surprise. But I'm curious, what, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in that world? Um, so, you know, what's interesting is that, um, of course, the expectations and these attitudes that millennials have um, in general, carry forward whether it's a B2C interaction or a B2B interaction. So when you talk about, for instance, bringing millennials into the workforce, a lot of the trends that we've already talked about um, around, you know, reliance on technology, um, appetite to, to innovate, um, you know, need for authenticity, need to build trust, um, emphasis on culture and values, um, all of those characteristics are brought to bear um, in B2B interactions or, um, you know, workplace culture. So it seems there's very little separation between work and play, is what you're saying? There is, I think so. And, and again, it's the, um, the, the motivations and the emotional needs that millennials have that um, are dictating how they act in, in any sphere of life. Um, so even if you take the concept of, of emotion that we've talked about um, already, you know, the fact that um, young millennials are looking for um, really uh, emotionally rich experiences and, and um, are looking for emotionally sort of diverse experiences, right? They're looking for things that are immersive, that um, are highly engaging. Um, that is something that they will uh, carry forward in, in the B2C interaction when interacting you know, with direct brands or, or if they're in some sort of B2B interaction. So, um, you know, emotion is just as important in, in a B2B interaction um, as it is in B2C and particularly for, uh, for these young consumers. And how do you think this works for the different generations outside millennials? You know, the trends that we see millennial setting and the way that they're approaching, um, uh, you know, brands and, and partnerships and um, experiences are, are sort of predictors for change that we'll see um, ripple through other generations. Um, it's just a, a matter of timing. So, um, you know, whereas millennials are kind of already uh, demanding, you know, a certain quality of experience um, and, and are shaped by certain attitudes, um, I think the older generations are going to have more of a learning curve when it comes to that, but are eventually and inevitably going to need to um, adapt, uh, you know, and um, sort of figure out where the common middle ground is. Um, in order to, to be effective. So even though the, the learning curve is steeper there and, and the time to uh, make the change will be longer, will be you know, more gradual sort of evolution, um, I think that we will see uh, a lot of sort of similarities and, and commonalities in the patterns of what we consider to be quote-unquote millennial attitude or millennial behavior um, and um, that of older generations. So Anjali, you said earlier that 
technology and so specifically with Gen Y, people in that generation are more willing to take a risk and experiment with technology and that kind of defines the generation. So as we have future generations, do you think that it'll be harder to define them because of the how widely accepted and how widely used technology is today with, with regards to social media and just access to the internet and everything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a really, really compelling idea. Um, I think we'll definitely reach a point in which technology is so ingrained and is so much a part of um, the individual's um, uh, you know, daily life that there really is no distinction between what we'd consider to be technology and sort of not technology. There would there will be less of a distinction between what we consider to be digital and physical. Um, in that case, generations may be shaped or defined by other kind of socio-cultural factors. Um, so it might not be technology or the availability or um, you know adoption of technology that um, distinguishes a generation. It may be other uh, things possibly that we've sort of touched upon already, things like interaction with institutions, um, you know, levels of trust, um, you know, awareness of an, an activation around values that may form the understanding of forthcoming generations. So, Anjali, before we let you go, we're wondering if you can give us some predictions for what we can expect as our new normal in the near future. Yeah, sure. I can certainly toss some ideas out there. Um, and, and, you know, this is, of course, based on historical and sort of current data. But, um, you know, I'm really curious to see how, how everything will evolve. I, moving forward, uh, there will be really absolutely no divide between the digital and physical. I think that even the, the conversation um, and debate around, for instance, you know, what constitutes technology versus what constitutes a, a physical relationship will be kind of a sort of null and void, will, will be essentially a moot point. I think there will be such intense um, integration of the two. These younger consumers will have a completely different interpretation of, of privacy um, and the trade-offs of, of data sharing, right? So, for instance, today we might get creeped out when a website sends us a, an, an eerily personal ad um, uh, but I think the next generation will expect websites to know most everything about them and, and to deliver that information in a relevant and contextual way. Um, and then I think that, you know, because younger consumers have been exposed to this, what many people are saying that is the post-truth era at such an early age, um, you know, I think they'll trust um, algorithms and trust automation more than we do today. So all of that leads to, you know, trends like automation, uh, artificial intelligence, and, and machine learning 
to um, uh, become you know, more of a sort of powerful force and very much a part of the new norm. Personalization and, and hyper-local content and experiences I think will be expected and will be critical to building trust um, among these, uh, these newer consumers. Um, and then, you know, we've talked a little bit about news and kind of social media. Um, I think that that will continue to become about sort of smaller communities and groups. Um, and again, it's a function of consumers looking to form relationships that are authentic, um, familiar, and that uh, bolster their trust. Um, and then finally, because of the integration of digital and physical, things like augmented reality will uh, certainly become something more common. People and millennials today, I think, are already sort of primed for this, right? App, uh, Pokemon Go, the, the gaming app, um, is a good example of what can happen literally overnight uh, when, you know, when the moment is right and if an experience is designed to play towards both critical emotions and also capitalizes on these young consumers' tech savviness and, and digital readiness. So those are some of the, the trends that I foresee becoming really part of, of what we consider to be the new normal moving forward. I love the idea of trusting the algorithm. That just seems like such an in- interesting premise and really sets up, like you said, all these new trends and technology and just innovation in general. So I hope that people do start to trust the algorithm. And thank you for making Eric's dream come true, because based on what you've said, we are only seconds away from living a life that's very similar to Marty McFly in Back oh, to yeah. the Future too. So <laughs> thank you so much for spending um, some time with us, Anjali. This was a really interesting conversation, and uh, we look forward to the future. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. July when you and I were forever wild The crazy days, city lights The way you'd play with me like a child Will you still love me? Today, my bigger boat goes to the Greek god Poseidon, the tipping point, the keeper and shifter of equilibrium, the fulcrum, the earth shaker. Through him, they say, safe passage was granted to seafarers, navigation, strength, fertility, and foresight. I chose Poseidon as because he is the newest member, in a sense, of Shark and Minnow as our emblematic mascot. More fittingly, the day before we recorded this podcast, we officially opened our doors to our clients, friends, and family. And I do believe that it was a celebration of all the work that we as a team, as well as several external teams and support systems have all in orchestra together um, made happen. And be it the architects, the contractors, families, are obviously the brave leadership of Eric and Hallie, um, the the painters, the custom carpentry, artists that gold-leafed custom artwork for us, the florists, just everything came together and it truly was a team effort. And um, it truly all came together. And Poseidon hanging on our wall is truly a symbol of 
all of the work that we put in in the past 18 months coming to this new space. And we love that he welcomes people as they walk in. And we look forward to having you visit us and say hello to our newest member of the team, the Greek god of Shark and Minnow, Poseidon. My bigger boat goes to the city of St. Louis. Uh, my brother and his family recently moved there and we drove uh, from Cleveland to St. Louis to celebrate Thanksgiving. And um, we are just blown away by the Gateway Arch. If you've never visited the Gateway Arch, it is quite an amazing national landmark and it's absolutely breathtaking, actually, in person. And a big shout out to the designer, Aero Saarinen, who designed the arch and it's spectacular. Um, we went to the top <clears throat> and didn't realize that they put you in these tiny little pods with five seats. So I was kind of freaking out all the way to the top, not because of the heights, but I just thought, oh God, if we get stuck here, it's going to be really bad. And there, there was a, a group of really burly men in, in line in back of us. And I thought, <laughs> how on earth did they fit into this little pod? There's like five, I mean, I think they were five huge, like six foot two and up men. And I don't think they realized that they had to go up to the top in this little pod. So anyway, God bless those guys. I hope they made it. (laughs) (laughs) My bigger boat. This episode goes out to David Jerka, associate director at the Kent state university, Cleveland urban design collaborative, who recently received the AIA Cleveland activism award for his work in building a sustainable future of the profession by making architecture and interior design accessible and relevant to the public while both educating and learning from the broader community. My bigger boat this episode goes out to my parents. My 24th birthday is coming up, and I wanted to thank them for raising me, teaching me, and molding me into the person I am today. So thanks, Mom and Dad. So my bigger boat is a little sappy today, but as Brian mentioned, we did open up our doors to our official headquarters uh, this week. I'm just so, so, so appreciative of everything that our team has done to get us here. So my bigger boat goes out to our team, um, Eric, Brian, Alex, Jen, for everything they do day in and day out to make this place not just look beautiful, but be a place that we come up with world-class work in a world-class way that just happens to be in Cleveland, Ohio. So thank you guys for everything you do day in and day out. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at Judson, a retirement living center, and our friends at Cleveland Institute of Music, a premier conservatory devoted to training the next generation of classical musicians. Together, through the Intergenerational Artist in Residence program, graduate-level CIM students live at Judson Manor in University Circle here in Cleveland, Ohio. In exchange for complimentary living accommodations, students provide cultural programming at all three of Judson's retirement communities. Learn more at JudsonSmartLiving.com. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at SharkandMinnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Tacone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. 